Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on June 8, 2014, Communion Sunday. Today's message is Bear Hug by Dr. Lyle Schreg, based on Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together in this place, we do so in obedience to your claim in our lives, and we do so with a sense of expectancy as well. We expect to meet you here. And we pray by your Spirit, even on this Pentecost Sunday, that, that you, would, you would inhabit the praise of your people, that you would inhabit our hearts, that you would move among us in a very powerful and wonderful way, as you have throughout your church. And yet, Lord, we, we come not only expecting you, but, Lord, we come with eyes open for each other as well, for we realize that as we respond to you, we come also as a family, together, one with another. Give us a sensitivity to each other. Give us a sensitivity that comes of the Spirit, that reflects your heart as you care, so that we might know how it is, Lord, to serve one another and to give of ourselves, even as you, Lord Jesus, came to serve and to give. And in that, Lord, we might find joy, and in that, Lord, we might be able to to give glory to your name and expand your kingdom. This I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I was just thinking of Isaac's, uh, or Pastor Isaac's uh, invitation for people to come forward. Uh, and maybe, Isaac, I will bring you, I have a little cartoon in my, at, 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 in my office at home that, um, of a church where the ushers were all kind of in wonder of a new invention that they had just put in place in the church. There were pews that were actually put together as escalators. So as people would sit there, they would start to move forward, and they would sit and move forward and sit, move forward until finally everybody was up in the front and they couldn't help it. You know, it's kind of a fun sort of thing. I don't know why I had that in mind as you were talking about that. Now there's a fictitious tale, fictitious tale told of a rescue party that came across a Pacific island, and on it they discovered one inhabitant a pastor who had been a castaway on that island for 20 years. As they took him from the island, they said, we bet you're glad to be off this island. And the pastor said, yes, but I'm going to miss my three-bedroom house. House? Yes, when I was shipwrecked, I found tools and I built that bungalow. The rescuers looked back on the island and said, that's, that's wonderful, that's nice, that's pretty impressive, three bedrooms but what's that other building behind it? And he said, oh, that's my church. He said, how can I be stranded here for years and not have a church? I go over every Sunday morning, 7 o'clock, start coffee, 9.30, Sunday school, 11 o'clock, worship, 6 o'clock evening, worship. I'm preaching through Isaiah at the moment. Uh, Monday night is visitation night. I check to see if anyone else has showed up on the island. Uh, Tuesday night is prayer meeting. Wednesday night, choir practice. Thursday, Bible study fellowship. I bring a little covered dish for myself. Uh, and while the rescuers were taking in the story, one of them noticed an even bigger building on the hillside, and he said, what's that? And the pastor said, oh, that's my last church. I could tell you some horror stories. That's <laughs> a fictitious tale, I know. But I have to expect that there are, for so many people, something about this that cuts very close to the impression of church. It's just composed of activities and programs that is clean and neat, 
But it always does have that potential for a horror story. So I suppose it's no wonder that, that there is a measurable phenomenon where people who are tempted to protect themselves in creating a buffer zone where they claim they, by saying that they can love God, but they then try to avoid the church like the plague. Because that potential is there. That's the impression. And I suppose it's also no surprise that the Bible suspects the very same thing. In fact, what we find in the Bible faces this temptation head on. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible so, because when you open the scriptures, you find that, 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 that there's nothing super spiritual about it. There's no sugarcoating on the troubles that are inherent in human relationships. It faces on very directly the potential for conflicts and tensions and discord and friction. You find about them all through the Bible. And because they are real, you also find that God is determined to provide an equally real and reliable instruction. Listen to Romans chapter 14, verse 19, the first part of that, out of the message, the translation. Let us use all of our energy in getting along with one another. In Romans chapter 12, verse 10, make it your business to excel in showing respect for one another. If the potential for friction or for a horror story wasn't real, church actually would be a very easy thing to do, wouldn't it? Fellowship would come natural, demanding nothing, but the fact is the challenge is real enough that, as spoken in the scripture, we have to use all of our energy and apply ourselves and make it our business and measure our efforts in order to excel in showing respect for one another, something that goes beyond our natural inclinations. Over the last month, we've been looking at one word in the New Testament embedded into every command that is found that describes what God expects his people be doing together. It's the word, Greek word, alelon, or what we have translated in our scriptures as one another. And you may remember that it is used over 100 times in the New Testament, over 30 times in the Gospels, and over 40 times by the Apostle Paul to describe what God expects his people to be about, their business. We have two alelons in those two passages that I just read from Romans. Get along with one another, show respect for one another. If we had any question about where we are to invest our energies, we can start right there making it our business, and applying our energies to this, this, this task. And when it comes down to us, that's where God applies the energy of the Holy Spirit, because it is through that that he empowers us to do even the hardest of tasks, like the Alelon I will introduce this morning, which is found in the book of both Ephesians and Colossians. Now, this morning, we read the passage from Colossians, all 17 verses. In Ephesians, it really only comes down to two verses. So, I don't want to keep you here afternoon. We'll go to the shorter passage, two verses. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. And there we read this. I urge you, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. And here is the alelon. Bearing with one another in love. Bear with one another. Now let's break that down a little bit. The first thing to note is that it is not an option. It is not optional. 
Not for anyone who claims to be under the name of Jesus Christ, the calling to which we have been called. I urge you, Paul writes, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which raises the question, what makes my calling, my faith, really worthwhile? What is my worthy walk, as you see it there? The one verb in verse 2 is, bear with one another. It is there as a verb. It speaks of the action that we are to take. In fact, a better translation is, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another in love. Each one of those three terms, humility, gentleness, and patience, are nouns, not verbs. And in the very simple term, it means that these are things that we already have. We possess these things. Humility, gentleness, and patience. But it is up to us to use them wisely and strategically and intentionally with one another. And the wise or worthy use of these things is what we employ when we bear then with one another. That's the verb. Let's face it, that's not always an easy thing to do. The word bear with is is fairly unique in the Greek. It means to patiently endure, uh, to tolerate, to put up with something or better yet someone who may be, how shall we call this or say this, difficult. How's that for a good word? I can only remember one line from an old poem, but it seems to cut close to the truth. It goes this way, Ah, to be with saints above, that will be the glory. But now to live with saints below, well, that's another story. There is a reality woven into the fellowship of the called ones, of the church. And if it's of any comfort, it is a reality that, in fact, we do share with our Lord Jesus Christ. That same word that Paul uses here, to bear with one another, was also used of Jesus in the very same sense. In Mark chapter 9, verse 19, he expresses some degree of exasperation toward his disciples, and he says, how long shall I have to, and here's the word, put up with you, (laughs) or bear up with you? Jesus is feeling that sense of need to tolerate some difficult times with difficult people. In my case, I take great comfort in that, if for any other reason it means that that he really does love me as his disciple and has chosen to put up with me and that he really does love you too and everyone around you. Let me just step back for a second. This is a very dangerous thing for me to do. Uh, and, And I will ask for you to do this very privately to yourself. Think, is there a difficult person within this room with whom... This command is going to apply. God really does love you, and he does really love them too. Is it any surprise then that in this simple verse, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, that the same principle that animated Jesus Christ is the one that animates us as well? Look again, bear with one another, it says, in love. And the word love there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, is one that belongs to God and God alone. It is agape one another. A year or so ago, I was intrigued to hear, to read the uh, testimony of uh, Heather King. She's a writer and a commentator on NPR, the National Public Radio in the United States. 
And while I was aware of her reputation as being a fairly cynical agnostic, I was really surprised to hear that she had become a Christian, and she actually then spoke of her story of faith. As she spoke of her story of faith, she said that she was a recovering alcoholic, and in part of her recovery, she had come to Christ and then decided to go to church. And on reflecting on her initial experience of going to church, this is her story. She goes, my first impulse, uh, she her first impulse she wrote as she was stepping away from her addiction. My first impulse was to think, my God, I don't want to get sober or in the case of church worship with these nutcases or boring people or people with different politics, taste in music, food, books, or whatever. Nothing shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people, people who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves, people who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way that we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that the church is the best place, the only place to be, while we all struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we are hard-pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God, that he loves us or that he loves everyone else. The two scandals of God, I love that. That God loves us and that he loves everyone else. And here I could probably add a third scandal, that he commands us to bear with one another in that same spirit of love. That's our mandate. It's found in the book of Ephesians. And it's found also in that passage in Colossians, chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved by him, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Okay, let's put all this together. In both of these cases, Paul gives us some guidance on how to fulfill the command, and it comes down to the tools that we choose to employ when we are together with one another. In Colossians, Paul listed five. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's our stock and trade. In Ephesians, we have three, very similar to the five. And in both cases, it's very hard to separate them from each other and say, well, okay, I'll take a multiple choice here. I'll take that one and that one, but not that one. They are all together. For the sake of brevity, again, let's take a look at the one that appears in Ephesians. There are three. Humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice that Paul begins the word with the word humility. And some of you may have a translation that says, be completely humble as the first attitude that we must have. What a frustrating thing that is, that term humility. Be completely humble. It is probably one of the most frustrating traits to cultivate. In fact, I had a sermon on humility, but I'm still waiting for a thousand people to appear before I give it. But um, it is a frustrating thing. You know to yourself that you're not supposed to be proud. Uh, so that you go ahead and work on being humble in the only way you know how. So you end up groveling a lot, and you apologize at every turn, you open doors for everyone, and, and when it comes to taking the last piece of pie or food at the table, you say, oh, no, 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 you take it, I insist. 
And you always make sure that you work the longest and the hardest and sacrifice the most. And if you're really serious about it, you learn to sigh a lot. <sighs> and eventually you think to yourself, ah, oh, I finally arrived. I am humble. And I am so proud of my humility. <sighs> Only to realize you're right back to square one. I am so proud. Oh, I have to start all over again. If it's of any help to you, the word that Paul uses here, as well as it appears in the book of Colossians, it was a made-up word. And it was one that was made special because of Christians, because it was not special in the Greek world. It was an invention. You see, the Greeks and the Romans did not have a word for humility. The concept was abhorrent for them. It was so foreign to their thinking that they had no word used to describe it. Oh, they had a word like it, but it was used as an insult to describe someone who crouched in submissiveness like a slave. But Paul took that word and he added the word mind so that humbleness meant a loneliness of mind. And it was applied to Jesus, who humbled himself in taking human form and served us and called us to serve us each other as well elevated it to the point of great virtue. Now the best way I can describe it is to say it was the mindset of Eden before the fall. Let me explain. With Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve what was the first indication that sin had in fact had a catastrophic effect on them? What was the first indication? That sin had actually done something terrible to them. It says in Genesis that having taken of the fruit, they suddenly realized that they were naked and were ashamed and fashioned garments for themselves. Now ask yourself the question, before taking a bite of the fruit, were they not also naked then? I mean, when they took the bite, did their pants fall off? Or, you know, were they not already naked before? No, they were naked before, and afterwards the only difference was that um, it was a matter of focus. Before, they were totally focused on the other person and totally self-unaware. And sin changed all of that. So that because of sin, they were totally focused on themselves, and that's the legacy that we carry within us even today. And all the words that come with that, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed, self, 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 has turned our eyes Inward, And the great work of God in redeeming us as his children is to break that spell so that we can get back to that loneliness of mind where self isn't even part of the equation because we are so focused on others just like Jesus who came not to be served but to serve and to give of himself to others. To bear with one another requires, first and foremost, humility, the ability to focus on others so intently that the self is set aside. I like the way John Stott described Paul's word here. Humility or loneliness of mind is the ability to recognize the worth and the value of other people and the respect we give others by our intent recognition of their intrinsic God-given worth. In ways, it's a matter of vision and how we choose to see one another. I love the insight that C.S. Lewis gave in his book called The Weight of Glory. 
He writes there, he said, it is a serious thing, a very serious thing for us to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that even the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature. If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Consider the resurrected body. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a night. And Lewis concluded, he said, there is no such thing as an ordinary person. And in our fellowship, realize this, Ebenezer Baptist Church, there are no ordinary people in this room. But there are sons and daughters, there are men and women of God, and they are all around you were you to lift up your eyes. Humility. And, and then the next two, gentleness and patience. Do they really need to be defined? The word gentleness that Paul uses here is also translated elsewhere in the scripture with, by the word meekness, which may sound rather sappy at first, until you realize that meekness is not a synonym for weakness. On the contrary, as one New Testament scholar defines it, meekness is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless master of himself and the servant of others. Meekness is the absence of the disposition so to assert personal rights, either in the presence of God or men. It is, it is a strong choice that is made out of the humble mind to make others matter most. You can see how humility and gentleness or loneliness and meekness form a natural couple. For the meek man thinks as little of his personal claims as the humble man would think of his personal merits. They were found together in perfect balance in the character of Jesus Christ, who was described in this way, that he was gentle and lowly of heart. Humility and gentleness and then patience. The word here literally means long-tempered and was particularly applied toward aggravating people. I, I like the picture it paints. It's like taking a fuse attached to an explosive device, the temper, and then stretching it out. Long, long-tempered, pulling out that fuse out, out further and further and further and further until the initial sparks will never end up in danger of igniting the explosion. Humility, gentleness, and patience. You put them together, and you can bear just about anything. But it's our choice to make it our business. But when we do, it does make a difference. In his book, Great Church Fights, which is an interesting book to read, uh, Great Church Fights, a study of conflict in the church, uh, Leslie Flynn tells a delightful little story of a few kids in his neighborhood. The children had worked long and hard on building their own little cardboard shack. It was a clubhouse, if you will. That would be a special spot where they could meet in solemn assembly or just laugh and play games and fool around. As they thought long and hard about the rules for their clubhouse, they finally came up with three rather perceptive ones, I might admit. Rule number one, nobody act big. Rule number two, nobody act small. Rule number three, everybody act medium. That is not bad theology when you think of it. 
In different words, God says the very same things. As those who are chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bear with one another. And with all humility and gentleness and patience, bear with one another and do it in love. Were I to add anything else to that list of clubhouse rules, it would probably be everyone's welcome. That verse on bearing one another in Colossians is set up with a promise and a prayer. And we pray this, he says, that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you all to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Brothers and sisters, we are in this together. And even as we come to the table, we realize that the examination of the body called for in 1 Corinthians by the Apostle Paul is not of your own individual self. It is of the body of Christ. And it is time for us to think of how we then can express a love and a blessing to one another and endow into one another this sort of image that Jesus Christ has as he sees you as his child. We've got our work cut out for us. I, I don't know if, if anyone here is involved in the Special Olympics. I've got another little sports story to end with. But it's a huge sport. I just read that nearly 3,000 athletes are expected to take part in the summer games in the state of Michigan alone in the States. The slogan of the Special Olympics is, caring is more important than winning. That's the slogan. Did you know that? Caring is more important than winning. The events of the Special Olympics are like any other sporting event with one major difference. At the finish line of every event, there are a group of volunteers who are called huggers. It is their job, in addition to calling out the winners, to encourage the competitors throughout the race and then greet them and then welcome them at the finish line and do it with a big hug. It is an amazing thing to see. And it makes the whole thing a very stunning event where everyone feels special, respected, even as a winner. But better yet, there's a hug at the end. What greater reward. I look at that and I think, isn't that what we should be all about ourselves in church? With humility and gentleness and patience, we bear each other along. At the end, it's not just a hug. Might I suggest it's a bear hug. That was a joke, but I love it. Man, that's the church, and that's what we're called to do with each other. Let's not wait for it to happen. Let's make it happen today. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we pray, we do so preparing our hearts to be able to share at the table, and as we share at the table, we realize that you are here among us, and And you have chosen deliberately out of the love of your heart to bear with us and to be with us. And out of that, Lord, you've called us into an an examination of heart and, and, and to take this table in a worthy manner. That's how it is said in 1 Corinthians. But that examination is not something just of ourselves alone, but it is something of ourselves together. So I pray that by the power of your spirit you would move in the hearts of this congregation that we might think of someone who needs that hug that only we can give. They need to be endowed with that sense of respect, that sense of honor, 
Help us to make that our business. And Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us to exert all that power toward one another. This I pray in the powerful and the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, the one who, who loved us and gave himself for us, our Lord. Amen.